This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Daniel James and Rachel Withers. Daniel James is a Yorta Yorta man, a writer, broadcaster and host of The Mission on 3RRR. Rachel Withers is contributing editor of The Monthly and columnist for The Politics. Both Daniel and Rachel joined me for a referendum roundtable as we delve into the Indigenous voice to Parliament, providing an in-depth analysis and answer to every question you might have about it before you vote. I'm so pleased and delighted to welcome onto the show two lovely, lovely people, very talented people, and they're joining me to talk about the Indigenous voice to Parliament. As we always do, we talk federal politics in this first slot and we try to delve deeply into the issues that matter most. And this really does matter the most. At the moment, if you are a postal voter, you would have probably already received your postal vote in the mail. Also now, as of today, every state has early voting centres open. So now is the time that people, a lot of people will be thinking about voting. And I know that people do vote early a lot more often with other types of events like elections. So we'll have to wait and see just how many people take up early voting with this referendum. But now is the time really with about two weeks to go to really delve more deeply into this issue. I am so pleased to welcome onto the show Daniel James, who is a Triple R broadcaster. He hosts his own show on a Tuesday, a fellow grid buddy. He hosts the wonderful show The Mission, which is on at 7 o'clock tonight, 7 till 8. And uh, I do recommend going through Daniel's back catalogue of interviews because there's some phenomenal ones where he's sat down and spoken to some amazing elders talking about The Voice just recently. And I'm also joined by Rachel Withers, who is a columnist for The Politics, which is the monthly's week daily column. And Daniel James also does contribute to that column. So there's a little bit of crossover there. Uh, Rachel's point eight, I'm point two in every way. <laughs> well, you're going to have to lift your load in this conversation then, Daniel. We're going to have to go 50-50. I'll just speak point two percent of the time. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. So, yes, Rachel is also contributing editor to The Monthly and Daniel, a talented writer as, as well. So what a wonderful combination we've got in here. Wonderful talkers and writers. So I welcome now Daniel. Hi there, Daniel. Hello, Amy. Good to see you. It's been quite a while. A very well, long time. Well before time. the pandemic even, I think. I, know, I think oh, the wow. first time... Oh, did I, like, run into you in Studio One? And yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah and yeah. I was, I don't know, finishing up maybe a pre-record or something. I yeah, don't know. I was, I was going in for a pre-record. Yeah. Yeah, that was a long time ago. So long. Yeah. yeah. No, it was... How ridiculous is it that now I'm finally seeing you in person? I can't believe it. Yeah, no, I, I blame Bill Gates. Yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> Slippery slope. And it's kind of related to this conversation in a way. And Rachel, welcome back. Thank you. This is only the second time we've seen each other in I know. person. But it, again, it feels like we see each other all the, all the time. time. Yeah, no, it's super weird. But really wonderful to have this chat in person. I think it does feel oh, absolutely special yeah. and needed. Yeah. And the gravity of the issue warrants it. This is something that, Daniel, you've been covering for so, so long, and Rachel as well, very intensely. And Rachel, from a political perspective, Daniel, from many perspectives, I also should mention that you're a Yorta Yorta man. So you're coming from many perspectives. I know you talk about politics a lot. Yeah. And this certainly has been politicised a lot. And that's why we're going to go back to basics, I guess, and then also go deep. So we're going to start... At the very beginning for sure. everyone. But, Daniel, do you mind 
just sharing with the listeners where this actually has originated from because I think there's still confusion about where did this come from? Did it drop from the sky? Did Anthony Albanese do it? Did the Greens come up with it? You know, there's a lot of ridiculous claims about where this idea originated. It was basically a bipartisan um, attempt by uh, the government of the day, and I think it was actually Tony Abbott's um, uh, government, that um, asked regional leaders and people like um, uh, Pat Dobson, uh, Megan Davis, Pat Turner, who um, basically reported back to government that, if you remember, the Recognise campaign was something that was floating around, and that was a a campaign about constitutional... um, recognition only and they reported back to um to government that the the community the aboriginal community wasn't satisfied with that and actually wanted something more and so then the government goes well what do you want I mean what what does more mean mm. and then they were tasked for going away for like two years um creating regional dialogues um getting delegates from regional centers to um you know talk about what constitutional reform looks like for First Nations people. And that all culminated um, in 2017 at the uh, Uluru Dialogues, as they were known, in which it was a robust discussion, I'm told. Um, Not everyone agreed, but the vast majority of delegates there agreed and got behind the Uluru Statement, which came from that. A one-page statement that basically was an offering to the Australian people... um, uh, around recognition, reform, truth-telling, um, Macquarie Commission, all succinctly on one page. So that's mm. where the, uh, the the question of reform in this in this form actually started. And that um, Uluru statement was presented, and I was actually there on the day at the Great Hall, as they call it, in um, Parliament House. It was presented to uh, Malcolm Turnbull, who was then the Prime Minister at the time, and within a couple of days, you could say it was immediately rejected and then mischaracterised by Turnbull himself and by Barnaby Joyce, mm. the leader of the Nationals, as constituting a, uh, a voice would be constituting a, a third chamber of, of parliament. That was the first lie. And that lie actually took a long time for, um, to, 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 to overcome mm. for uh, yes proponents because... Um, it's something that the, the media more broadly carried without really even sort of thinking about it. And it became part of the, the local vernacular when it came to the voice, a third chamber of parliament, mm. a third chamber of parliament. And it was something that um, really took root. And it wasn't until uh, election of the Albanese government that uh, it was certain that the, the voice within the constitution would be put to a referendum. The Morrison government had wanted to legislate the voice, but if we recall ATSIC, ATSIC was uh, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, Commission was also a legislated body that the Howard government got, with, got rid of with the stroke of a, of a pen. So the whole idea of putting the voice in the constitution mm. is that if you want to remove the voice, then you have to go to another referendum. In terms of what the voice looks like, that's totally and utterly up to the parliament and the legislators there. Exactly. And that does bring us to also that other terrible source of misinformation and and messaging that Rachel and I have spoken about a lot, which was, where's the detail? Show us the detail. You know, there's no detail. And that's what we've heard for the last year, really. This year, definitely a lot about where's that detail. We do know, actually, that a lot of thought has been put into what it might look like. Yep. 
hasn't it? Yeah, like- Tom Carmer and uh, Marcia Langton were also tasked with going away and coming up with a model. And the model actually looks very similar to um, the the model that was used for the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commission. You'd have uh, regional bodies that would um, nominate delega- delegates that would then feed into uh, a national mm. voice that would um, speak to executive government. And that would be something around, I think, about 35 delegates overall across the country. Which is huge as well, because that is showing that it's very grassroots-based. It is people representing their own communities. Yeah, well, one of the um, one of the other lies that quickly came out went um, David Littleproud and uh, Peter Dutton had decided to oppose the voice was that it was going to be a Canberra voice. Mm. Well, it's a Canberra voice as much as it's a Canberra parliament. I mean, we have a parliament that is representative of uh, MPs and senators from across the country. The voice would be the same as proposed by Tom Carmer and Marcia Langton, um, but on a smaller scale, of course. Mm. But again, it's up to the parliament to, decide, to actually decide what it looks like. Yep, absolutely. That's I, a, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to add there just that that, of course, has been like a claim the whole way through. Mm. Where's the detail, you know, implying something is being hidden. But it is well understood, I'd say, even by those pushing the detail question that the actual make of the body will be legislated by parliament. And while we have a model from this co-design process, ultimately what gets legislated will come after the referendum and the coalition is well aware Mm. of that. Um, We saw a very interesting exchange last night on Q&A that I think is actually worth looking up where, you know, Indigenous leader Noel Pearson was speaking to Shadow Minister Dan Tehan who was kept saying, you know, oh, but we won't be able to change it. And it kept being explained to him that, no, the, the referendum is about amending the constitution just to put in some words to say that there will be a voice and and you know there's a thing it's about 25 words or something and then the body itself will always be up for change via legislation if it's not working if a new government comes in and wants to do something different we are just voting on the principle of having a voice yeah yeah that's right and that's a good point and something that has also been very deliberate like let's keep things simple we're here engaging in a referendum because we have to change the constitution it's a very practical thing that needs to be done to enable this voice and also to obviously enable the recognition of the first nations people as the first peoples of australia rachel we were just saying let's also talk about the question because some people may not have seen the ballot yet and I know that those who have a postal vote will have seen it. I've seen it myself. So I know what it looks like and it's very, very easy. It's, it is one question and it is just a yes or a no and you write in yes or no. But let's just actually read out the question, do you mind, Rachel, just so people have an idea of what they're going to be faced with. Yeah, so the question what we will have on the ballot paper, and it'll be a yes or a no, it will say, a proposed law to alter the constitution to recognise the first peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Do you approve this proposed alteration? And then people will also be able to see the the actual words that will be Mm. inserted into the constitution which will be Chapter 9, Recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Peoples, and 129, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice, in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Peoples as the first peoples of Australia. That's the recognition bit. Yep. One, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice. 
Two, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice may make representations to the Parliament and the Executive Government of the Commonwealth on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And three, the Parliament shall, subject to this constitution, have power to make laws with respect to matters relating to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, including its composition, functions, powers and procedures. Now, that bit is mm. the bit that says the Parliament will have primacy and supremacy yeah. and, and will make laws about the voice and, of course, can alter and amend the voice. Um, and it's very clear that the voice won't have any kind of veto power over the parliament. It, it won't be a third chamber. Uh, it will be something that will be subject to the laws of the parliament. I think that's something that, uh, you know, a lot of people have been struggling to come to grips with is mm. how humble the offering yeah. actually is. Um, you know, worst case scenario, and you, you had someone like, um, you know, Peter Dutton in government for um, a long time, he could constitute the voice as being one person mm. if he wanted to, if he had support of the parliament to do that. So the, the power still totally and utterly lies with the Australian people through the Parliament of Australia to give the powers to the voice, take the powers away, work out its composition, its functions, the procedures, all of that, what people are being asked to vote for, as, as Rachel said on October 14, is ostensibly a principle. And that mm -hmm. principle is whether First Nations people, the first people of this land, should have a voice in the founding document of this land to the Parliament to remedy issues for First Nations people in real time instead of retrofitting yeah. policies, legislation, laws, as we so often have to do, systems. This is an opportunity for First Nations people in real time to speak to Parliament as these laws are being made. Mm. Honestly, the question might as well be, do you think Indigenous people should be consulted about matters that affect Affect, affect them, them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. no. Exactly. That's the question being That's put. the paraphrased, yeah. yeah. And, the, and there has been legitimate, I think, legitimate debate around the composition of the question. I know Julian Lisa, who uh, resigned as the Shadow Attorney General um, over, the, over his support for The Voice once mm. Peter Dutton announced his opposition to it, had, had some queries about the, uh, the, 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 the question uh, but now even he is firmly behind the question and still mm. firmly behind the yes case. And he's actually been, um, in my humble opinion, one of the more effective proponents of the yes case as well because he's coming from a position where he is a black and white constitutionalist. Yeah. And I mean that in the legal sense, mm. not in the <laughs> um, racial sense, even though race is not a part of this. Mm. And um, it's a very, like I said, a very humble offering and something that, um, despite all the fear and, and misinformation, when you come down to it, it is just, should, you, should First Peoples be consulted about laws that affect them? Yeah, and I think that the very modest, humble nature of this request, you know, of course, that, that has played into some of the progressive no that mm. we see. There are yeah. a, lot of, a lot of Indigenous people and, and, and others who say, this isn't good enough, this doesn't go far enough it doesn't come with any actual power and those are legitimate complaints but I think that is what makes the conservative no so depressing mm. and cynical mm. is that this was honestly the smallest ask it was no actual you know power but just the right to be consulted and the you know the coalition has decided to play games with this because they can see an advantage for them politically 
in tearing it down. And, you know, who knows if this advantage will actually come to to pass. But Daniel has been writing a lot lately about about the progressive no. Um, Mm. And I think that's that's worth touching on here as well. I agree. And I also just wanted to bring in the fact that I read the interview with Gary Foley, which was posted up on Overland yesterday. So he's been out there as well as alongside Lydia Thorpe and some others being more vocal around the progressive no. And, yeah, I'd also love to hear from you, Daniel, about it because you're speaking really well about, you know, what exactly is the sticking point for them and also providing that historical context. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's there's two no campaigns. Well, there's not... You say the progressive camp, um, progressive no isn't actually even a campaign in mm. the traditional sense. So we have the conservative no campaign, which takes up uh, most of the oxygen um, when it comes to the opposition in this debate. And then there is what... Um, is being termed the progressive no um, campaign, which is led um, by uh, First Nations people, um, and most prominently of of all of them, of course, is Senator Lydia Thorpe, who is the leader of the Black Sovereign Movement, um, uh, as it is known. That opposition comes from, well, of course, this isn't enough. The voice isn't enough. What we need first is treaty, and then we need a truth-telling process following that and that kind of uh, I guess it's not a demand it's 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 logic that stems from um, uh, a more radical um, element of the First Nations uh, activist activist movement radical because it needed to be radical mm. um, born um, ostensibly out of Redfern and Fitzroy in the late 60s early 70s if it wasn't for that movement, we wouldn't have things like the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service. Um, Lydia's mother and uh, grandmother and great-grandmother were instrumental in establishing that health service and also establishing the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, which was the first uh, culturally appropriate service here in uh, Victoria. Um, without those people and without uh, people like Lydia's lineage, like people like uh, Gary Foley's uh, leadership over the years, uh, we would be a long way back in terms of where we are today in terms of service provision, activism and uh, everything that comes with that. But here in 2023, where we stand at the moment, it is the Uluru Dialogue people and the S23 people that have generated a consensus, not a perfect consensus. Mm. No political movement is perfect. And they've got it to such a point now where they've got the government of the day on board pushing for referendum change along the lines of what came out of the Uluru uh, dialogue. So from my perspective, and someone like Briggs has put it really well as as well, is that when you go to vote, there is no progressive no box, there is no conservative no box, there's only one box. Mm. And you've got to choose yes or no, and you've got to write it. And from um, from my perspective, I totally understand the opposition from um, elements of the community. Why would you trust government to constitute a voice? But at the end of the day, if you're going to go into a treaty process or a truth-telling process, you got to butt up against the same thing, and that is the colonial construct in the government of the day that is formulated under that colonial construct. So from my perspective, the referendum is the only game in town, and you've got to pick a side. Yeah, and I might just add, as as someone who tries to be a good ally and and considers themselves progressive, I, I remember back around around Invasion Day, when this movement really started to kick off, being quite in a lot of turmoil myself of of trying yeah. to 
trying to listen to these voices, which I think is really, really important, um, but also, you know, trying to do the right thing. And I think ultimately how I made decided to, to set my position, if this is about listening to Indigenous voices, we should listen to as many as possible. But ultimately I think it's important to remember that the vast majority of Aboriginal and Torres Strait mm. Islander people do back this voice. There's quibbling about the exact number, but we've seen, you know, polls saying it's about 80%. And so I think if this is about listening, it is important to listen to the majority, to also listen to the conservative, no Indigenous voices in, in Warren Mundine and Jacinta Price, but to always recognise that the majority do back this voice. What, what's also occurred throughout the course of the campaign is that, and as the campaign has unfolded, and people have seen the toxic nature of the campaign, the lies, the misinformation, the, the racism, the bigotry. Um, you've had some of the staunchest people um, from the progressive no side actually take stock and say, OK, well, the question is a binary question. Mm. Um, for 97% of Australians, it is a binary question. But for First Nations people, it has become an existential sort of question. And that question is... What sort of country do we want to be in? And at its very core, do we let the racists win? Mm. Um, and so we've seen people like Tani Nonis Brown, who is um, a prominent member of the uh, war movement, the Warriors for Aboriginal um, Resistance, Resistance yeah, yeah. contemplate and think very deeply about whether um, to vote yes or no. And she has come out and said, well, because of the nature of the debate and, and, and what we're being confronted with, um, it's a binary question. I'm going to vote yes. Mariki Onis has mm. um, also come out and very eloquently in a Facebook post, probably months ago actually, state her reservations about the voice but ultimately come down on the side of yes. Briggs was someone that was um, contemplating it very deeply as well um, and he has thrown his support behind the yes campaign. So there are people that mm. were progressive hard nose that have actually thought deeply about the issues as the debate has unfolded and have actually become um, not even soft yeses, soft yeses, but hard yeses. And I was someone, too, that thought about it deeply as well. And I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to say yes, but I'm not going to be too sort of rigid about it and I'm not going to sort of ram it down people's throats. But again, as the nature of the debate has unfolded, um, it's, there's actually a, a much deeper issue here with mm. what sort of Australia we want to be. And we need to send a message by voting yes to say, well, we're not going to sort of appeal to these darker angels of our nature. We're going to actually vote for something that is positive and a move forward because what we've been doing so far has not worked. Not even close. It's in many cases been regressive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think one line that Briggs has has repeated a few times is is that we currently live in no. This is no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes is is something different, it's but voting no forward. is is vote, voting for the same. Mm, yeah. That reminds me of when I was talking with Thomas Mayo and Kerry O'Brien and they were saying, you know, what Australia do you want to wake up to on Sunday morning? Do you want to see, you know, the smile on Peter Dutton's face and, and you know, Pauline Hanson? an effective argument. <laughs> yeah, like just picture that and, and the front page and them celebrating and enjoying that. And do you want that or do you want something totally different? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very vivid picture that they paint. <laughs> <laughs> it sure is, isn't it? I mean, add in um, Clive Palmer has yeah. decided to chuck millions and millions of dollars of at the No campaign. Oh. Yeah. 
So I mean, if you look at that. Mm. I mean, if you want to look at it even deeper, the a lot of the the shadowy figures that are funding the Conservative No campaign are the same people that would have us. Um, all burn so they can become even filthier uh, rich, you know, the mining magnates of the world. Uh, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to defame <laughs> anyone. <laughs> uh, they're probably better cashed but up than me in the station. But um, There are, you know, groups yeah. who, who were sort of behind Trump's victory in the US yeah. um, and, and, you know, there are interesting groups piggybacking off the back of this mm. um, and enjoying the uh, opportunity to spread misinformation and stoke division. We, we, we touched on it before, but the opposition to The Voice is a key election strategy for, for Peter Dutton. It's a strategy yeah. that he has used to um, uh, build his profile as an opposition leader, but also use the apparatus of the Liberal Party to, to try and um, uh, scrape support through the No campaign to the Liberal Party. They've asked for um, donations so they can fight the voice. It's very Trumpian, isn't it? It's like, very It makes Trumpian. you think of the Trump legal cases and, you know, mm. fighting court cases and donate to me. Well, even more, th- even more than that, I, I, I've kind of seen the referendum debate as a, a trial run for, for Trumpist-type politics. Mm. And we have the conservative forces trying misinformation, outright lies, sort of alternate reality-type yeah. um, scenarios... Um, I see that as a soft run for the next federal election. So um, the, the referendum itself is a key element of uh, Dutton's and Little Proud's strategy to get back in the government. Mm. But it's pleasing to see that at the latest, latest news poll, support for Peter Dutton as opposition leader has slipped to an all-time low. So not only is he wrecking the referendum, he's also wrecking his own political opportunities. Yeah, he's certainly pulling some people down with him, though, isn't he? Yeah. I'm speaking with Daniel James and Rachel Withers, and we are talking the Indigenous Voice to Parliament, and it's just been utterly fascinating chatting with you guys. I wanted to touch on one thing that I did get the chance to ask Thomas Mayo and Kerry O'Brien about when they were in the studio, and this was when there was confusion around why does the voice need to make representations to executive government versus the parliament? And that was something which I think those who probably didn't study legal studies or weren't nerds at school like me wouldn't know, you know, what does executive government mean? And, you know, there's all separate branches of government and they're deliberately separate for a reason. Executive government being part public service, so obviously that would be like the secretary of the Department of Environment and also all the public servants under them, but also the minister that they report to. So that part, executive government, is a really kind of critical thing, a critical cog in government, because that's where all of these policies start out that do affect First Nations peoples. And I did comment then, and I'll say it now, I've been on boards where I get given something right at the end when it's been finally created, all dressed up on Photoshop, here we finish the policy and then I'll just, you know, put in a few tweaks and what's your opinion? And it's too late. It's just way too late to give any meaningful input. And that is really essentially what's been happening or even worse for First Nations peoples up until now. And, Daniel, you were alluding to it earlier, just how important it is for First Nations peoples to be able to step in and at least be consulted, at least be asked, at least be able to provide meaningful and also very diverse input from different perspectives in these areas that are so critical to their lives. If you have input at the germination stage of any law or piece of legislation with input from First Nations people, then um, the, the chances of having to retrofit that down the line 
is um, is you know severely reduced. What we've had for the last um, hundred odd years of uh, of uh, of uh, federalism uh, are laws that have been made, um, policies that are made, and then those laws and policies ostensibly become systems. And when it gets to the system part of the cycle, it's almost impossible to reform those systems, to retrofit those systems, to put Aboriginal people in and around the core Mm. of that. Uh, We see it with the health system. We see it with the education system. We certainly see it with the justice system. Once it gets to that point, it's almost impossible to to, um, reform and get... um, any sort of parity for, for Indigenous people. So the idea that uh, the voice speaks to executive government and all the machinations within that, senior public servants, even regional public servants, uh, the feed into the cabinet process of government that actually puts the laws forward and has to negotiate those laws to get them through both houses of parliament, executive, um, executive government is the, is the germination of all that. Exactly. And if we know as well what that advice is, and hopefully we will get a sense of what that advice is, there'll be transparency and and great governance around the voice, which is what, you know, Thomas has been talking about. I think that will then also provide a level of layer of accountability, won't it, Rachel, for politicians who then, if they disregard advice that is clearly evidence-based, clearly experience-based, then they're going to look pretty average. Yeah. And, you know... I think they could potentially do that, but there will Mm. be this mechanism where people can actually say, through the process that you as a parliament established, um, through the the legislation that creates the voice, you received this advice Mm. and you have rejected it. It'll be much clearer than what we currently have, which is a lot of different voices saying, like, you know... I think this, I think yeah. this, why aren't you listening to this? Different and we'll interest have a formalised structure. Mm. Mm. The, the referendum is the clearest articulation of the will of the Australian people that you can possibly have in our democracy. So if the um, Yes campaign is successful and people decide that uh, we do want to have an Indigenous voice in the Australian Constitution, it would be a very, very brave government indeed that didn't pay heed to, to that voice because mm. it would be... Um, uh, electorally very damaging for any government that cast that voice aside. But also I'm I'm confident that if the voice is actually constituted properly and constructed properly, um, the evidence-based advice they give government will be pretty hard to refute. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's That part is empowering. And I know that there's a question also around self-determination that comes up in this. And is self-determination even part of it? And I think that is. That's that's part of it. That does seem to represent, to some degree, self-determination. That's certainly part of it. Self-determination is a part of it. From my perspective, the voice has long been seen as a, a, a starting point mm. as well. And that can actually be a starting point. And it's in the Uluru Statement, a starting point that gets us to a truth-telling process like we have in here in Victoria through the Europe Justice Commission and then a treaty process like we have through the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria here, which are both doing tremendous and fantastic work in, first of all, um, uh, holding systems like the child protection system and the mm-hmm. criminal justice system to account. They have the powers of a royal commission so they can hold government to account. They've given... Um, the Andrews slash Allen government, 12 months to respond to their first report on the criminal um, and child protection systems. And then there's the treaty process itself. To have um, those things 
um, happen in a meaningful way and not happen through a panel that is put together ostensibly by, by government, as we've seen in, in the past when it comes to Indigenous affairs, then, of course, the voice is best placed to advise the, the government, the parliament and um, executive government on what a treaty process would, would start to look like. Yeah, yeah. Just on that self-determination mm. point, Noel Pearson, who has put forward some of the, the most compelling, profound arguments... Um, in and very this... poetic. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and he has changed tone a few times throughout, mm. I think, as he found the tone he wanted to, to speak in. But he made a point at one point around the idea that actually by giving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people a, a voice, they make themselves accountable. And this is one yeah. of those conservative arguments, much like, you know, we'll, we'll save money through a voice, you know, it'll be more efficient. But also he said, you know, if we have this voice and we give the advice and, mm. and things are still going wrong, you can blame us. Now, that's a very conservative argument. It's appealing sort of to conservatives. But, but at the same time, you know, I think the voice really is about saying, give us agency over this. Mm. Um, and I think that, to me, is what makes one of the arguments um, from figures like Jacinta Price that, you know, this turns Indigenous Australians into victims so disingenuous because it is actually about saying, let us have agency over, over, over our matters that affect us rather than, you know, I don't understand how anyone could view this as, as victimisation, which is one of the, the arguments that's been put forward by people who sort of want to put all this behind us and forget all about it. Well, they also want to put history behind us. They don't even want to acknowledge intergenerational trauma, massacres. Let's forget about that. That's just nothing to see here. Here's the way I think about intergenerational trauma. First contact for First Nations people was probably about five generations ago. That's five relationships. That's five relationships between mother and son, Mm. son and daughter, etc., etc., down the line. That's that in in the history of time. And to deny that that has an impact on us here in 2023 is ludicrous. Um, Someone like Tony Abbott is one of the main proponents of that, saying that uh, uh, intergenerational trauma and um, the idea that it's impacting people today is a um, neo-Marxist fiction he's used. So... Tony Abbott's been, Tony Abbott has come out full white supremacist yeah. Yeah. on this. He's yeah. basically come out and said colonialism was great for um, Aboriginal people. That's been parroted people like, by people like uh, Jacinta Price. Mm. And there are no ongoing impacts. Um, if you get to that point in, in your logic and your argument and, and it's the core of your reasoning, then you do away with everything in terms of service provision to First Nations people representative bodies to First Nations people, you are, you are imposing in full assimilation on the First Peoples of this country. If you get to that point with your logic and your thinking, mm. that's actually what you're saying. Yeah, and I'm not surprised that that's what they're pushing for because historically, essentially, that's what's been the case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was sort of thinking about this a little bit yesterday um, in terms of, of Warren Mundine, whose, whose daughter mm. came out and... and disagreed with him and said that a lot of what he is saying is hurtful and there was a particular joke that um, that 
a racist comedian made at CPAC, the Conservative Conference, and Mundine laughed it off and, and you know, has rejected multiple opportunities to condemn that joke or to disagree with it, mm-hmm. um, suggesting that traditional owners were, quote, violent black men. And I look at, at Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine and I really wonder why they feel like to to take down this voice, which they disagree with for their own reasons, they feel they need to put up with jokes or, or actually make statements that um, are racist towards, mm. towards their own people. And, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very difficult one for me to comment on, on their motivations, but yeah. um, it is very sad and it must take a, a great deal of cognitive dissonance to I mean, be able absolutely, to. Absolutely, yeah. I've been following this pretty closely. Mm. And I can't think of one example where a leader from the Conservative No Camp has come out and denounced any of the racist comments, any no. of the racist postings, any of the Nazis marching in the street, literally. I can't think of one leader, Peter Dutton down, that have actually come out and denounced any of those actions. Now, that's mm. that's telling in itself. Isn't it? Yeah, we, yeah. we've seen yeah. Mundine um, push a few people off his campaign for anti-Semitism, but not for anything... Racist That's towards, really ridiculous. Uh, that yeah, there's yeah. a double standard. Yeah, because it's a key part of their argument, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, and I mean that's the point. I mean we've already talked about the progressive no side. There are so many different arguments you could make for both sides that you don't need to resort to no. this in the gutter racism. I've always thought, and you know, I'm not a sloganeering type person uh, at, at all. I'm not someone who is a, is a campaigner. And so, therefore, when it's, when it's come to the voice, I've always thought that if you explain carefully and clearly the logic behind something like the voice, mm. then if people understand that logic and, and that argument and it's clearly articulated, then it's almost impossible to, to refute. Now, not many people, a lot of people across Australia don't have the time to to get into the nuts and bolts of this, and that's totally understandable. There are a lot of um, uh, pressures on people at the moment, namely cost of living in particular, and people have got more important, from their perspective, things to to concentrate on. But those that do have the time and are available to to understand the argument and the logic... Mm. it's very difficult to refute once you understand it. That's a great point. And when I, I mentioned at the, at the top of the show, there's a Guardian Essential poll out this morning, which was saying, and I was kind of shocked about this, about a third of Australians still don't feel like they're across it, that they understand yeah. it. So, you know, with about two weeks out, this conversation is so important to have that. And I feel that we are we're doing a good job because the text line's telling us. So there you go. Okay. This, this discussion is the best. Thank you for texting in to tell us. But it also is quite crucial because about 48, 49% are currently saying that they would vote no. And we all know there's a very high bar with a referendum. There's a double majority. So you need to have a majority of people in each state and then also a majority of states. So that is a pretty high bar and there's a reason why referendums are difficult to pass. The the path to victory for the Yes campaign is narrow, but the path is there. It is definitely there. People want to take it. Yeah. It's totally open. And there are, as the, the polls suggest... Soft no's, soft yeses and undecideds. There's a lot there to go. And also, as we know, people do tend to make up their minds closer to when they decide to vote or sometimes even when they literally step in and look at the ballot paper. But this is one thing I think that you should 
think about more deeply than you might have done if you were engaging in a federal election where it's just, do I want, you know, Liberal, Green, Labor, Independent? That's an important decision, but this does require, I think, more thought and critical thought. Well, let me... Let me sorry, Rachel. No, just, no, go ahead, um, Daniel. Let, let me do two things here. Let's, let me give a plug to um, a podcast series that's coming out under 7am next week. Um, I'll be hosting 7am, the podcast, all next week. And we'll be going into the, um, the the Yes campaign, the Conservative No campaign, the Progressive No campaign, the Undecideds, and what all that means. So for the five days leading up to the referendum, uh, we'll be talking about that. As part of that process, I've spoken to uh, lots of Indigenous leaders, including Lydia Thorpe, and, um, and uh, I'll be speaking with Marcia Langton tomorrow. One of those people is Mick Gooder who mm. is, you know, a stalwart, someone that was there around um, around Attic and saw that um, fall apart. Um, he's been a Royal Commissioner with the, um, uh, within, in the Northern Territory. One of the things that he said that resonated with me uh, the most is that once you're in the polling booth and you've got the pencil, all the noise, all the misinformation, all the yelling, all the screaming is nothing but an echo and you're in the polling booth by yourself, it's quiet, you have a pencil and you have a decision. And the, that decision has got to ultimately come down to your conscience. Mm. Most likely for people who are listening to us now, the voice will not have an impact or play any sort of role in their lives. So it comes down to whether we recognise First Nations people as the traditional owners and then we empower through the collective voice of the nation to give First Nations people a voice. It's as simple as that. And once you get into that polling booth by yourself, that's the choice you've got to make. Yeah, that's very well put. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah, Rachel? I was, I was just going to add, um, and, you know, as, a, as, again, somebody trying to be an ally, I think what is going to be really essential is those one-on-one conversations, mm. which are, can be quite difficult to have. I have one that I've been putting off having myself uh, with a family friend, but, you know... If you understand the two, you know, the very simple thing that this is an advisory body and it won't have veto power and that there is a lot of misinformation that is being cultivated by the No campaign and, and you know, a lot, of, a lot of the things that might get thrown at you if you try to have a conversation with a family member or family friend, if you can point to the fact that that's misinformation yeah. and ultimately it's an advisory body, um, then I think you you have a duty to have those conversations and make sure that people do understand that there is a lot of misinformation in this campaign. Mm, It's everywhere. It's hard to keep track of just how much misinformation there is and a lot of this even letterboxing and and we've seen it in past elections but this is certainly more heightened given the nature of the question. The other thing I just wanted to bring in here is the positive part of the campaign, hearing from people like Noel Pearson, but there's so many great voices in the Yes campaign. And I I did sit down and watch the National Press Club address that he gave, and I was just noting the language he was using, which was a little bit different to what I'd heard from the Yes campaign in general. And it was really talking about a mutual love of country and what I guess he was trying to do, perhaps from a slightly more conservative perspective, was trying to unite people across political divides to say this is our country together and we're coming from this not from a patriotic standpoint, not from a saccharine, overly sentimental standpoint. This is from, you know, a genuine love of 
this country and and I think he also pointed out and what I really appreciated from him was he was saying we are three percent of Australia so we may not have shared the dinner table together we may not be able to rely on your empathy as a friend but there's another thing that we can do here which is to really join together and unite in terms of the love of our country and I use that with a capital C as well as obviously, you know, Australia. So I, I was really interested in that, that he was kind of addressing this sense of disconnect that perhaps people might feel when they're voting on this issue, that they maybe don't, in their circle of friends, don't have a lot of First Nations peoples as part of that circle and how they make sure they're keeping that in mind of, you know, if, that, if that's part of their thinking when they're voting, what do they want? Should I factor that into my decision? I was really interested in the way he was approaching that. Oh, uh, Noel's, a, Noel's actually a very conservative guy. Yeah. I think, you know, both in the way that he lives his life and, and, and his politics. And I think what he was trying to do very eloquently and, and, and quite, you know, in, in a clever way is point out that people who are non-First Nations people don't love this country any less than First Nations people. And uh, now is an opportunity to actually enrich our own democracy. And um, you can play... A part in that by, by by casting a yes a yes vote, and uh, another thing that uh, Noel's been trying to do uh, recently as well is take the idea of uh, race out of the the question. Mm. That this is actually this isn't a question about people based on race. It's based on people's relationship with this continent that we now call Australia, the first peoples of this land, and there are examples of indigenous people from across the world. Uh, from all different races who have been impacted dreadfully by colonialism. And here in Australia is one such case. You're not voting for for black people, you're voting for the first peoples of this country to have a voice Mm. because what's happened to those first peoples under the society that we've um, established here in Victoria and Australia is something that needs remedying and this is a way to do it. It's not making um, black people any more superior or um, uh, 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 powerful. No special rights. No special rights. Yep. It's just a way of remedying what has happened under the colonial, um, some people say experiment, some people say construct, but as a result of colonialism, here we are in tremendous disadvantage. Can we work with you to mm. remedy that somehow? Yeah. It's so well put, Daniel. That's such a great way of assessing what he was saying. And I agree, it's such a clever way of... It's almost like putting a fire blanket on those ridiculous arguments. Yeah, the whole, I mean, the, 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 the absolute lies about how, you know, the, the referendum introduces race into yeah. the Constitution. There are race provisions within the Constitution already. 1967 was an example of that as well, gave the Commonwealth the power to make laws uh, on behalf of uh, uh, Aboriginal uh, people. This doesn't even enter, this doesn't even add race to the Constitution. Uh, you know, um, there are already race provisions within the Constitution. This isn't going to be one of them. No, no. And there's also a lot of targeting of people from multicultural backgrounds as well in their own languages. Yeah. And that's quite concerning. And, I mean, that's another thing that we've seen in past elections, but this has been, you know, quite absurd, I think, that some of the arguments you've seen, you know, written in Mandarin and, and other languages. Yeah, I think... Um I could, you can already see what the next battle for the Conservatives are going to be um, after this referendum, and they're already moving to the the idea of uh, immigration yeah. and, and mm. the, the numbers of immigration because 
if you are a true conservative and you want to, um, you think that you're looking after the, the the institutions of this country and everything that um, the fair go stands for, well, nothing changes the country more than um, than um, immigration and, and migration. And we, I, I can I can see it now. I can see that sort of Trumpian type politics that will come into play. That um, uh, will start talking about white people being um, a minority and endangered species. Mm. Um, it's the echoes of Brexit yep, as well. Yep, yep. yep, they're trying it out through the referendum. You yeah. can see that see that they're going to carry it on beyond this. Um, they will continue um, attacking the most vulnerable people in our society, uh, trans people. Um, there will be no let up in, in that sort of um, uh, campaign. So. It's also an opportunity for, again, existentially, yeah. for people to go to the ballot box and say, well, we do we want this. to put a stop to this type mm. of uh, politics, to this level of debate in our country? Can we lift the standard a little bit? And I would argue by voting yes, you will be you know, sending a very clear message to some of the, the worst Trumpist elements within our um, political landscape that, no, this is not on. We believe in you know, a skerrick of integrity within our democracy. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to let you know what's coming through on the text line, a lot of great comments to say thank you because it's really clarified this issue for them. So I'm really glad that that's what this conversation has done. That was what I had hoped and I'm sh- I knew would happen with two wonderful people like you. But also they brought up some points like someone's neighbour has said if yes gets in, Australia will end up like apartheid, which we've just said what, a, you know. So that's, that's an Andrew Bolt line. That, there you um, go. He... he puts in his columns probably at least once a fortnight. And then we've also got someone saying on a similar note, how do you best tackle the misinformation coming from those sovereign citizens or sovcits freedom movement, those people that we've seen out on the streets protesting alongside the no campaigners? And I guess that must mean that some people are seeing that in their own circle of friends, that those messages are reaching them in some way. One thing I would suggest is that the people who are marching as neo-Nazis and um, as uh, sovereign citizens who uh, catch a, a public transport system, uh, use our public roads, um, if they uh, cut themselves, they'll end up in hospital. Mm. Um, so they're not that sovereign. No, right? clearly not. Um, uh, presumably they were educated through uh, taxpayer dollars. They're, they're yeah. not very sovereign. But they're also tiny in number. Exactly. Mm. They, they, yeah. they have very loud voices. Mm. Social media allows those voices to be amplified and unfettered. Um, but realise that they are actually in a tiny minority. The question around yes and no here is a much more mainstream question mm. than those fringes would have you believe. Yeah, it was a great point on Twitter. I saw someone say, I'm not going to even use his name, but there's a person saying, oh, you know, there's going to be this many thousands of people out to see Dan go and, you know, we're going to have this great <laughs> protest. Oh. And then there was a tiny little handful, a picture of a tiny handful yeah. of people. We at stopped this... the 96 tram for about five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the perfect visual representation of what you just said there, Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, there, there's not a lot of things things you can say to people like that that, those, yeah. that small group of people to convince them. I think it's it's the people who don't know what's going on mm. and who are sort of buying into the maybe if you don't know, vote no mm. kind of lines who you should try to speak to um, and just make sure that they know it's an advisory body, it won't have a veto, it will not affect their lives at all, but it might make some other people's lives better. And I yeah. would also put forward that the, the people that are crying apartheid in relation to the voice, that the people actually crying apartheid to the voice 
would love to bring mm. a form of apartheid to here to Australia. You know, have something yeah. similar to what we saw in South Africa. And in terms of the national conversation, we've never been closer to it. The racism is off the mm. charts at the moment, and we've never been in a more dangerous, more stressful time for um, First Nations people since first impact and everything that's followed from that. This is in my lifetime, and I lived through uh, Mabo, I lived through WIC, I lived through the scare campaigns around that. This is that on steroids. Mm. This, this, mm. Is, this is just something where it's the only topic of conversation that people want to speak to you about. Everyone asks you about it. You can't escape it. It's on the nightly news. You're being spoken, as a First Nations person, you're mm. being spoken about and not to. And it's um, a very stressful time for a lot of First Nations people. So if there are any mob out there that are actually listening and you require support, then 13 Yarn is a great service, which has been hopefully funded correctly now to deal with the rise in numbers of people seeking help um, as a result of the, the, the nature of the national conversation at the moment. Yeah, and you made a really great point. I can't remember where I heard you say it, but, Daniel, was, you were saying that the Black Dog Institute had real concerns about yeah. the mental health of mm. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, went to Canberra, and no coalition MPs would meet with them to hear their concerns. That's right. That's, so, yeah. you know, a, a, an example of what we've already just been saying, that there is, as we know, the Liberals were out in the cold after the last election, looking dire, not going to try and win back seats in independent areas you know, Kuyong, et cetera, their heartland. So they're trying to grab other voters in non-Liberal areas and this is part of that strategy. So, you know, you've got to see this for what it is as well. It's where dogma meets reality and people end up getting really hurt as yeah. a result of it. Yeah, and that's the most horrific part of this. Mm. Certainly when I've been speaking with the Aboriginal people that are in my circle, they've been saying how shocked I guess they are that the racism has come from people they didn't expect to, mm. you know, be sharing Jacinta Price's comments in her articles. You know, it's kind of like this blowback that they're getting from all of the news coverage, you know, from people they wouldn't expect to kind of take on or listen to those voices. So I guess it must be even harder because you don't know where it's coming from. It's just, like, everywhere. I wake up, up some mornings and I have... Um a bloke I used to go to school with who's now a New South Wales copper who is sending me um, uh, TikToks that are arguing against the voice mm. um, as if that's somehow going to change my mind. But it goes to that point you were just yeah. making. You don't know where it's going to come no. from. You get, you're getting hit by, by, from all angles at mm. the moment. Um, and uh, it's a very sort of unsteady, unnerving time for, for many, many mob out there. Yeah. Well, thank you for all the actual labour that you're doing, Daniel, <laughs> truly. Emotional, physical. Rachel as well. Yeah, exactly. But We are very lucky to have Daniel. Aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I've just been so fortunate to have you both to talk about this topic. And it's not just a topic, it's something, as Daniel said, which is existential. So please do think about it, look at the question. And as Daniel was painting that picture when you're in the box, you know, thinking about what you're going to do, you know, all of that falls to the side, all that noise, all that ridiculous stuff. And as you said, it's about your conscience. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. It, it, the only voice that actually ultimately really matters is your own when yeah. it comes to this matter. Mm. Um, the idea of uh, the voices floating about and there's so many people shouting and screaming about it. But when it comes down to October 14th or before that, if you want to pre-poll, it's your own voice that will decide this matter.
Yeah. Thank you both for joining me. It's been really wonderful. And I know because I've had a million text messages <laughs> coming in. So I really appreciate your time and I'll let you go because I know you're very busy. Thank you so much, Daniel James and Rachel Withers. Thank you, Amy. I've been speaking with Daniel James, as I said, a Yorta Yorta man, writer, broadcaster and host of The Mission on 3RRR. He'll be back in here tonight at 7. And it's I very think... studio. And thank you, Rachel. And Rachel is contributing editor of The Monthly and columnist for The Politics. And you are tuned in to 3RRR FM. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.